Hey, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to be in chapter 14 this morning. If, uh, if you're not familiar with God's Word, that's okay. 1 Samuel is in the Old Testament, and it is the eighth book into the Old Testament. It'll be Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and 1 Samuel. Sorry, I miscounted there. My, my math teacher, at least miss my wife, is going to get on me. That's actually the ninth book in there. So it's in the first part of the Old Testament, 1 Samuel chapter 14. And as, we, as you turn there, I also want to encourage you uh, about our Discover Statum class that's going to be held on April the 12th. Discover Statum is the opportunity for you if you are uh, interested in church membership here at Statham Church. We would love for you to be a part of uh, what it means to be a member at Statham Community Church and to find out what God is doing, hear our story, hear our vision, and, and see if this is a part, see if this is a church that, uh, that God is leading you to join and to impact the world for Jesus Christ by making disciples and planting churches. So if you're able to come, we're going to do that the weekend after Easter on April the 12th. So this morning, we're going to be talking about great battles that teach great lessons. John Eldred said, deep in his heart, every man has a battle to fight, an adventure to live, and a beauty to rescue. I think that's why my dad always really loved those country western type stories and, and shows, those guys that featured his heroes, John Wayne and Roy Rogers. They were the good guys who always had that battle to fight. They always had that adventure to live and that beauty to rescue, and they always won. The, the movie American Sniper that just came out documenting the most decorated Marine sniper, American sniper, Chris Kyle, that movie was an inspiration to me. It made me proud to be an American. Snipers are my heroes. Those are the guys that go through some intense training. Those are the guys that have to make life and death decisions in a moment's notice. I think snipers are America's greatest military asset. Matter of fact, Charles Henderson's book, Marine Sniper, 93 Confirmed Kills, is the true account of America's first sniper and Vietnam hero, Carlos Hathcock, who was also known as White Feather because he wore a white feather in his helmet when he would go to battle. It was almost like, I dare you to find me, is what he would do. And he had some amazing stories, amazing missions that he went on into the heart, in, I mean, beyond, deep into enemy territory. On one particular mission, Carlos Hathcock goes without food and sleep for four days. He goes deep behind enemy lines by himself on a suicide mission, belly crawling all the way to his final firing position, coming nose to nose with a venomous snake to take out a notorious North Vietnamese general. And then not only did he take him out, but then he crawled back out undetected, successfully completing his mission. Both my cousins, some of you may have heard of Max Cleland, and my uncle, Bobby Cleland, they fought in Vietnam. And my uncle Bobby was telling me, he said, I credit Carlos Hathcock 
as the key in providing protection for my platoon. Great battles teach great lessons. Great battles teach great lessons. One of the greatest battles that we find recorded in Scripture happened in an area about half the size of a football field. Saul, in 1 Samuel 13, has just become king of Israel. In his first week, he sets up two divisions. One he has, and he has 2,000 Israelite soldiers with him, and he sets up at a place called Michmash. And then there is Jonathan, his son, and also a general in the army, and he sets up at Gibeah. And that is where he encounters his first battle. Gibeah, or Jabbah, is also known as the Hill of God. Michmash was about a mile and a half northeast of Jabbah. Both of these areas are in the tribe or in the territory of Benjamin. They were on the west side of that particular territory. Now, Jonathan, Jonathan was the Chris Kyle of the Israelite army. That's who Jonathan was. He loved his country, and he fought valiantly for his people. And most importantly, though, Jonathan, unlike his father, was a man of faith who followed God wholeheartedly. And Jonathan, what we find in 1 Samuel 13, before we get to 14, what we find here is that Jonathan draws first blood. So Saul is in his first week as king. He's already set up his two divisions. You've got 2,000 men on one, side, one place. You have 1,000 in another. And Jonathan draws first blood. The Philistines at this point had control of the hill of God at Gibeah. But Jonathan and his division won that battle. And we know that he was successful from the response that King Saul and, the, and, from, and from the reaction of the Philistines at that time. Saul had claimed victory and then moved his troops from Michmash to Gilgal, where he was to wait seven days as instructed by the prophet Samuel. The victory, however, that Jonathan encountered, that Jonathan received was... It, would, it roused the anger of the Philistines who then prepared to retaliate with vengeance. If you look in 1 Samuel 13, verse 5, the Bible says that the Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. So there was a bunch of people. There was a lot of people that was going to be in, that was gathering in order to go to war. Bunch of people here. And they went up and they camped at Michmash, east of Beth Avon. In other words, where Saul and his 2,000 were, now the Philistines took over. And when the Israelites, though, realized that their situation was critical, they were hard-pressed, they were overwhelmed, they were distressed, they were distraught. And many of those Israelite arm, many of the Israelites at that point in the army, they went AWOL. They became deserters and they became defectors. In other words, there were some that just completely abandoned the cause. And then there were some that just abandoned their duty and their post. They became deserters and defectors. In verse 6 of chapter 13, the Bible indicates that, that the Israelite army, some of them went and hid in caves, in thickets, in the rocks, in pits, and not only that, but they also hid in cisterns. It was like they would go hide in like these big barrels. 
And then in verse 7, it says that some even left for another tribe or another city. They were running for their lives. They were scared. As a matter of fact, they were so scared. The Bible says in verse 7 of chapter 13 that they were actually quaking. They were trembling. They were so afraid that the, it, that the Philistines were going to come and just conquer them. They were hopeless. Can you relate? Can you relate to being in that critical of a situation? Have you ever just wanted to just throw in the towel, raise your white flag, give up? From a human standpoint, Israel's situation was completely hopeless. Completely hopeless. Saul was an inexperienced king. He'd only been in, he'd only been in, do, in office for, seven, for, for less than a week. He was completely inexperienced as a king. He, not only was he inexperienced as a king, he may have had the appearances of a, as a king, but he didn't have the heart of a king. He had not prepared his people for battle. Now, we'll give him a pass since he was only in office for less than a week, but he still had not equipped his army with the weapons that they needed in order to fight the battles. There was an embargo that would, had been set up by the Philistines. And their embargo was so effective that the Israelites were limited to fighting with their farming tools that had to be sharpened by their enemy. Now, can you imagine the quality of work that they were going to receive? No, they did not get any good quality. That's what they had to use to fight with. And not only that, but the Philistines charged them an exorbitant amount of money in order to do it. See, Saul was a, he was a terrible leader. He was a terrible leader. He was impetuous. He was impatient. He was disobedient. He was uninspiring. He had no influence. And he, had no, he was just full of pride. He was full of pride. The Bible says in verse 22 of chapter 13 that on the day of battle, only Saul and his son Jonathan had weapons to fight with. Here are thousands of Israelite soldiers, and they are weaponless. Because whatever weapons they did have had to be sharpened by their enemy. Go figure. We're not talking about good leadership here. The Israelites had been completely cut off from their northern allies. They were greatly outnumbered by the Philistines who had possessed thousands, not just hundreds. We're talking thousands of chariots, thousands of horses, thousands of people, thousands of soldiers. And they all had far superior armaments in order to fight with. The Israelites were in a hopeless situation. They were sitting ducks. They were sitting ducks. They were limited on people. They were limited on leadership. They were limited on supplies. They were tired. They were scared. They were quaking. They were outmanned. They were overpowered. They were overwhelmed. And they were weaponless. Sounds like a recipe for disaster and annihilation, if you ask me. But in God's economy, this is a recipe to see him do something that will make a stand in awe. See, what appears to be a major setback was simply a setup as the direct result of one man's bold faith, the Bible says the Lord rescued Israel. The Lord rescued Israel. You see, no situation is ever hopeless for Israel because Yahweh is Israel's God. And nothing, nothing can ever hinder the Lord from saving. Nothing can ever hinder Him from saving. Furthermore, faith-filled initiative serves as an entry point it serves as that entry point for the Lord's saving action. So, here's where we pick up the story with Jonathan and his armor bearer. Let's follow along. We're going to start in chapter 13 of 
in verse 23. Now, a detachment of Philistines had gone out to the pass at Michmash. One day, Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his young armor bearer, Come, come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he didn't tell his dad. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron. With him were about 600 men. Don't forget, they had all left. And now this is what he's left with. So Saul's army is down from 3,000 to 600, up against thousands, among whom was Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod. He was, the son, he was a son of Ichabod's brother Ahitab, son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh. No one was aware that Jonathan had left On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozes, the other Sinna. One cliff stood to the north toward Michmash, the other to the south toward Jaba. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Do all that you have in mind, his armor bearer said. Go ahead, I am with you, heart and soul. And Jonathan said, come on then, we will cross over toward them and let them see us. If they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we will will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, we will climb up. Because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were hiding in. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, Come on up to us and we're going to teach you a lesson. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet with his armor bearer right behind him. And the Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed and and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about a half an acre. Great battle. Great war story here. Here's two guys valiantly fighting for their country, fighting for the Lord, and they pick a fight pick a fight with 20 guys in an area about half the size of a football field and they win doesn't make sense does it there are some great lessons that we learn from this battle lesson number one we have an enemy we have an enemy jonathan and his armor bearer had an enemy the israelites had an enemy and that was the philistines and there was a detachment that had gone out to the pass at mcmash so there's these Some 20 people, Jonathan and his armor bearer sees them. And Jonathan says, come on, we're going to go fight. I believe that based on this passage of Scripture, God revealed to Jonathan his will and told him to go fight. That he was with him and he was going to be victorious. So Jonathan goes and he fights. And he fights his enemy. We have an enemy. We have an enemy. The four questions I want to answer real quick are these. Who is our enemy? What does he look like? What is his plan? And how do we fight him? First of all, who is our enemy? 
Your enemy is the devil. Your enemy is the devil. He's a roaring lion based on what 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 through 9 talks about. Matter of fact, in that passage of Scripture, Peter is addressing the pastors, the elders of the church. And he's telling the elders of the church, you are to be the shepherds of God's flock, which is under your care. And then he goes down a few more verses, and then he says, your enemy, the devil, is roaring a lion, and he's looking for somebody to devour. In other words, you are to protect your sheep. You are to pray for your sheep. You are to watch over them. Because these are my flock and I am entrusting them to your care. But that enemy is not only my enemy, that enemy is our enemy. That enemy is our enemy. And he's looking for somebody to devour. That's, his, that's who it is. The enemy is the devil. What does he look like? Does he look like some red being with horns coming out of his head and a pitchfork in his hand? No, he doesn't. The Bible says that he masquerades as an angel of light, based on what 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen says. Paul, excuse me, in this, per, in this particular passage, Paul is addressing the Corinthian Christians at this point. So not only are pastors and elders and shepherds of the church being addressed about who the enemy is, so is the church being taught who the enemy is and what he looks like. He masquerades as an angel of light. In other words, he appears to be good, but his purpose is evil. This is why it is so important to be praying for wisdom. It is so important that in our prayer life, in our daily prayer life, that we ask God to give us wisdom and not doubt, and that we receive the wisdom that he gives to us. It's so critical in the life of a believer to demonstrate godly wisdom because wisdom comes from God. It's not going to come from anywhere else other than God. Wisdom, it keeps us from being foolish and harmless, harmed in our lives. When we look in James chapter 2, excuse me, James chapter 1, and we look in verse 2 and following, the Bible says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work in you so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. The devil masquerades as an angel of light. Therefore, we must ask God to give us wisdom to understand and know what he and his schemes are. Pray for wisdom. What's his plan? What's his plan? Jesus, our real commander-in-chief, said this about our enemy. The thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. That's his plan. Those words came straight from the mouth of Jesus. If Jesus says that our enemy's plan is to steal from us, to kill us, and to destroy us, if you could put that in one word, it would be annihilation. That's his plan. His plan is to completely annihilate us. Completely. How do we fight that? How do we fight our enemy? If you look in James chapter 4, verse 7, the Bible says that we are to submit ourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Two words. How do we fight? First of all, we submit. We submit to God. The word submit means to place under or to have rank under. It means to obey. In 1 Peter 5, 6 through 9, where we were just at just a minute ago, where Peter is talking about the devil and that he's like a roaring lion looking for somebody to devour. In this passage right here, 
Peter says to humble yourselves under God's mighty hand. Why? That he may lift you up. You want to know how to fight? You want to know how to fight your enemy? Submit yourselves to God. Place yourself under his leadership. You have no higher rank than God. But to be out from under God's leadership, to remove yourself. If, God, if you can look at God's leadership as kind of like an umbrella, okay? And if you were to step outside of that umbrella of his leadership, then you are unprotected and exposed. So it is imperative that we remain under God's leadership, that we place under or that we fall in line with his leadership. He is our commander in chief. He knows best. He sees the whole war. He sees the whole picture. So we need to submit to him that he may lift us up. Submit. Secondly, we need to resist the devil. Resist the devil. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27 says, do not give the devil a foothold. In other words, if you want to put that in layman's term, terms, stop doing wrong. Stop doing wrong. When you do that, you just give the devil a foothold. So be wise in your decisions. Be wise in, in, in how you live your life. If anything is questionable, especially students, all right? Y'all listen to me for just a second. If there's one question that you students can ask, and this is really applicable for any of us, okay? Adults included. But students specifically, if you just ask the question, is it wise? And then whatever answer God gives you comes back and God says no. Or if you have this uneasy feeling, ah, this is not too wise, don't do it. Don't do it. With, withhold from acting upon that thought. But if you sense that this is a wise decision and God gives you peace that it is a wise decision, take those next steps and follow the Lord. But stop doing wrong and giving the devil a foothold. So that's how you resist. Second way and how you resist is you clothe yourself for battle. When you take a look at Ephesians chapter 6, the Bible says that we are to put on the full armor of God. Why? Why are we to put on the full armor of God? We're to put on the full armor of God so that we can take our stand against the devil's schemes. We don't go to battle without clothes. We go to battle with God's armor. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness. He's given us everything we need in order to fight the battles. He's given us everything we need in order to take on the hit. There's a, there's a story. Matter of fact, it's one verse in the Bible where it talks about Benaiah, one of David's mighty men, who goes into a pit on a snowy day just to kill a lion. That's it. That was only one verse. Why would he do that? Who knows? He was a valiant warrior. But I can tell you this, he didn't walk out of that cave without scars. He didn't walk out of that cave without wounds. I can promise you that. But here's the point. We do have an enemy, and we will take our hits, but God has given us the full armor of God on which we can take our stand against the devil's schemes. You got it. You just got to put it on. So you submit to God, and you resist the devil. That was number one. Number two. Don't fight your battles alone. Lesson number two from this great battle. Don't fight your battles alone. What battle are you in right now? What's your battle? We all need armor bearers. I'm thankful for the armor bearers in my life. I'm so thankful for the armor bearers in my life who pray for me, who encourage me, 
who fight with me. You may say, what do you fight about? Well, it's not like a fist fight. But there are battles that we face. There are battles that men face. There are battles that women face. There are battles that children face. There are battles that we fight over our children. There are battles that we, that we face day in and day out. And we can't fight our battles alone. We've got to have those armor bearers in our life. Why? Because they fight with us. They fight with us. Much like Jonathan's armor bearer, he says, I am with you, heart and soul. Heart and soul. They fight for us. In other words, they got your back. They're not going to talk bad about you. They're not, going to, they're not going to gossip about you. They got your back. They are our brothers who are born for adversity based on what Proverbs 17, 17 says. They don't create the adversity in your life. They're born because you do have adversity in your life. You're going to face it. And those brothers in your life are there to help you fight through the battles. They carry our burdens. They carry our burdens. You think about what Jonathan did when he climbed up that cliff. He had to climb up that cliff. Who carried his armor? His armor bearer. See, when Jonathan climbed that cliff, he was using both his hands and feet. He had to have somebody to go with him. He had to have somebody to go with him. Don't fight your battles alone. Who is your armor bearer? Who is it? Tell them you love them. Tell them them you're thankful for them. Appreciate them. And go to battle with them. Number three. Third lesson is this, is that you demonstrate great faith. Great battles teach great lessons. You demonstrate great faith. When you take a look at what Jonathan said in verse 6 of chapter 14, he says, Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. Listen, numbers do not intimidate God. They don't intimidate Him. What matters is this. Is God in it is he in it if he's in it then victory is imminent if god is in it then victory is imminent it's gonna happen it's gonna happen and see living by faith is placing your faith in the truth that nothing can hinder the lord from saving it's it's placing your faith in the truth that god is more powerful than anything that god is able that god is our refuge that god is our ever present help in trouble that god is our hope that god is our peace that god is the lord of the battle and when you demonstrate faith you honor god You encourage others, and you empower other people. You see, great faith, number four, is contagious. Great faith is contagious. Look at what Jonathan's armor bearer said in response to Jonathan's statement of faith. What does he say in verse 7? He says, do all that you have in mind. Go ahead, I'm with you. Heart and soul, man. I'm with you, man. I got your back. You see, Jonathan's faith in the Lord was caught by his armor bearer. There was no fear. He had his back. Look at what he said. He said, do all that you have in mind, man. I got it. I got your back. You go fight. I'm right there with you. Back to back. There was no question. Just tell me what you want me to do, Jonathan. Go ahead, man. I'm with you. Just tell me what you need. Tell me what you want to do. There was no doubt. He was all in. He said, I'm with you heart and soul. 
You see, Jonathan's faith and his influence had spread to his armor bearer, and not only that, but it eventually spread to the whole Israelite army, and it eventually was the catalyst that acquitted him from receiving a death penalty at the hands of his own dad. Jonathan was a man whose faith was contagious, and it spread like wildfire through an Israelite army that was running for their lives. Great faith is contagious. Who is someone in your life who demonstrates great faith? Who is it? Can you think of them? Does their face come to mind? Have you noticed how your faith is strengthened from just being around them? Have you noticed how you are encouraged? Have you noticed how you are empowered just by spending time with that person of great faith? You can be that same person. You can be that same person who inspires others, whose faith is then caught by somebody else. Trust God. Have no fear. Don't question and have no doubt. Be all in heart and soul. Great faith is contagious. Number five. God's plan does not always make sense. It doesn't always make sense. Carlos Hathcock, going back to our Marine sniper, He went behind enemy lines to take out that North Vietnamese general. And when he did, Hathcock blended in with his environment. From the gun in his hands to the boots on his feet, he was completely invisible to the naked eye. Completely invisible. He blended in with the landscape so well that on this mission, he actually had a Vietnamese soldier or a scout on patrol who walked right beside him, and he never saw him. Matter of fact, in that book, Hathcock recounts the story of that particular mission when he's nose to the ground, belly crawling through all of the weeds and the stuff, and here's this foot soldier, and he is so close to Hathcock that Hathcock could have reached out and touched his boot. He was that close. Went completely undetected. Jonathan's plan, on the other hand, was completely opposite. Completely opposite. He says, hey, let's go and show ourselves to our enemy. You ever heard the message, don't try that at home? This is one of those times. If you're in military battle, this is not a good tactic. You don't go and just expose yourself to to your enemy, okay? Because you're probably going to get shot. You don't do that. But Jonathan's plan was not his plan. Jonathan's plan was God's plan. And while I'm sure that Jonathan didn't question God's plan, you know what? We all tend to question God's plan. Something tragic happens, and we ask, Why, God? 
We experience trials and we doubt. We doubt God. We're tested and we question God. Brokenness happens and we blame Him. It's your fault, God. You see, we see them all as setbacks. But what you see is a setback. What I see is a setback is really just a setup. It's just a setup. You see, because as our sixth lesson in this message goes and in this story, God always wins. God always wins. Have you ever known God to lose? Have you? I never have. Based on, what is, based on what the Word says, I've never seen God lose. God always wins. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of their holes. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, Come on up, guys, and we're going to teach you guys a lesson. So Jonathan and his armor bearer, they climb on up. Guess what, armor bearer? I wish they would have given him a name other than armor bearer. Guess what, armor bearer? The Lord has given these guys into the hand of Israel. And Jonathan climbed up using his hands and his feet with his armor bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about a half an acre. They followed God's plan, and the Lord gave them the victory. Here's the point. When you follow God, you never lose. When you follow God, you never lose. This one battle, this one battle, 2 verses 20. This one battle turned a hopeless, desperate, overwhelming situation into an awe-inspiring movement where the Israelites routed the Philistines, completely destroying them. Matter of fact, in verse 15, the Bible says this. Then panic struck the whole army, those in the camp and field, and those in the outpost and raiding parties, and the ground shook. It was a panic sent by God. God always wins. That's the God that we worship. That's the God that we serve. That's the God who has adopted us into the family of God. That's Him. He doesn't change. That same God that gave victory to Jonathan and his armor bearer and then eventually to the Israelites is the same God that we sing about today and that we read about in His Word. He's the same one. He does not lose. He always wins. He always wins. This is an important week in the life of of Christians today. 
This is the week that we remember the, the passion of Christ. We remember the triumphal entry on a young donkey riding in to the city on, with palm branches waving in the air. That's why we call it Palm Sunday. It was a day of celebration. But at the end of the week, it was a day of wonder. It was a day of question. It was a day where we felt defeated. It was a day that we were hopeless. It was a day that we had no idea what was going to happen. But then three days later, <laughs> God always he always wins. And on that day, He gave us the opportunity to experience eternal life. And He routed the enemy so that we can stand victorious. Gosh, how do you wrap that up? Except to say this. If you have never, if you have never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you've never trusted Him to be the Lord and the Savior of your life, guess what? He wants to give you victory today. He wants to give you victory today. And victory is found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's where it's found. And in that relationship with Jesus Christ, we've been given armor we've been given the weapons of which we can fight with we've been given everything that we need for life and for godliness we've been given everything we need to go and do battle with we've been given everything we need to fight our enemy we've been given armor bearers we've been given everything that we need so if you've never trusted Christ today, today, the Bible says, is the day of salvation. And it's as simple as this. Lord, I believe that Jesus is God's Son. You believe that in your heart, and then you confess Him with your mouth. Jesus, you are Lord. You're Lord. If you've never done that, if you've never done that, here's what I'd like to ask you to do. I'd like for everyone in the room just to bow your heads, close your eyes. And I just want to lead you in a simple prayer of salvation that says, Lord, the message that I just heard today has resonated with my heart and I realize that I am not in right relationship with you. I realize that I need to be saved. I realize that I am separated from you at this moment. And I don't want to be separated anymore. Lord, forgive me of my sin. I confess that you, Jesus, are Lord. And I believe that God raised you from the dead. And because He raised you from the dead... I am now raised to new life. And I can experience joy and peace and hope. I don't have to fight my battles alone. 
I can now fight my battles because you fight my battle for me. Maybe there's some here today that have been struggling in their faith. Maybe doubting salvation. Maybe maybe just struggling through just daily struggles. And you've tried to just live life on your own without the strength and the power of God working in and through you. And today is a day that you yield, that you, that you submit, that you place yourself under God's leadership, that you no longer go above rank, but yet you yield to His leadership and submit to God and you resist the devil so that he will flee from you. Maybe today is a day that you just turn from the way of the old life and you step towards the new life. And I thank you, Lord, of what your Bible says, what your word says, the promise that we are a new creation for those who are in Christ. The old has gone and the new has come. For it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Now, I want to draw your attention back to this next steps card. If today was a day that you made a spiritual decision in your life where you received Christ into your heart, you believed Or you may have questions about what it means to be a follower of Christ. And you want to talk to somebody further about those things. This is how we do our invitation. We don't want to just call people out right here in front of everybody or have an awkward situation or anything like that. We really want to be relational in how we handle people that have questions about spiritual things. And this is our way of how we communicate. This is... This is your way of being able to communicate with us about decisions that you make. And if you did make one of those decisions, there is a place on the back, and it just says, I'm interested in following Jesus. That means I'm interested in knowing more about Christ and being a believer and trusting in Him. Or maybe baptism. Guess what? Next week, we're going to be baptizing right here on Easter Sunday. Maybe you've never followed the Lord in believer's baptism. We'd love the opportunity to talk with you about that and celebrate life change with you through baptism. Maybe small groups or church membership or serving, or maybe there's some prayer requests in your life that you have that you want to share. Maybe private, if you would, just fill that out. You can just lay that card down with the image side up first, and nobody will see it except our pastoral staff. So take the time to fill this out. And you can drop it in our next steps table as we leave today. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for celebrating the the life of Christ. And I look forward to seeing you next week as we begin our Moving Mountains teaching series. As we talk about prayer, trusting, and believing. Would you now stand with me as we close in prayer and as we close in our final song. Jesus, thanks for today. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to celebrate the gift of life that you've given to us. 
For it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Let's sing.